You know, in retracing our steps in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, I began this journey with the, other, with the men at the other side in attempting to take them into a validation of the Scriptures, which I've carried some of that over into my Sunday sermons. Thus, I've also carried it into when we chose a book for a new emphasis on life groups, and not that life groups won't be other things, but for this season right here, we want them to be very discipleship-oriented. And that is, as Paul told Timothy, you have to know the source of your belief system, and you have to be assured of these things, because the gospel that we preach and the, the Christ that we promote and the Christ that we present to you as the mediator between God and man comes to us not through the historical records of noted historians that captured the life of Jesus for, you know, 2,000 years ago. No, it comes to us through men divinely and uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit, some of which were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And we have determined to base the entire foundation of what we believe upon their testimony. I've never seen Jesus with my natural eye, and neither have you. I've never reached out and touched him, and I've not been like the Apostle Thomas and put my finger in the hole in his hand and thrust my hand into his side, but I'm trusting that someone did and that I am believing in their eyewitness account and the testimony and the unction that was given to them to continue his teaching. As he said in the Great Commission, the things you will teach and make disciples, the things that I have commanded you. And we believe in that perpetuation of that apostolic doctrine. And we have arrived and we've concluded. That's who we've made ourselves out to be. We've created all of who we are based upon those testimonies. It shapes our identity. It shapes my relationships with each other. It shapes the way I raised my family and raised my children and the reacted and related to my spouse and the way I know and commune with you and how I live my life in the community. Everything and a part of who I am is based upon that simple passage there where I know where these things originated from and I am assured of these things. Can y'all catch that today? And then Paul transitions with a very uh, piercing word. And this word is often read to pastors at their ordination. And it was read at my ordination at the District Council of the Assemblies of God when I was ordained in 1994. And this is that I'm to preach the word of God. Here's an exhortation. Paul tells Timothy of this responsibility. He said, in light of Jesus' coming, then you must be prepared to preach the word of God. To preach it. Let's go a little bit farther. He said things like be instant in season and out of season. What does that mean? He meant to keep your sense of urgency, to have a stimulus in your heart, something in our heart and life that creates within me a sense of urgency. If I don't have a sense of urgency when I preach, then I have apathy in my heart. I either have one or the other. I have a burning word shut up in my bones that I cannot forbear, that I cannot stop myself because I've got to share this, or I have a sense of apathy in my heart, and whatever will be, will be. And so in my heart and life, I take this very personally. He said instant, in season, out of season, it means this, when opportunity presents itself, and even if it doesn't. The Amplified Bible says, when the opportunity seems favorable or unfavorable. The truth of the Word of God must be shared whether it's favorable to those that are listening or it's unfavorable opportunity. The truth of the Word of God, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether it's welcome or, or unwelcome. And if we were to go back into the third chapter there for just a moment, Paul told Timothy part of his ministry as a preacher of the gospel is to reprove. Now, to reprove simply means to confute or to convict or to admonish or even to tell a fault. 
And I know a lot of people don't like anything that reveals or exposes fault in their own life. But let me tell you, without that, you'll never make correction. If somebody does not have the courage to stand in front of you and say, you're going down this road and the bridge is out and you need to turn around and make things right and go another direction, then you're going to go headlong off into that gaping chasm somewhere. That, in essence, is one part of our ministry as pastors is to reprove and then to rebuke. And rebuke has a harsh sense to it, but it's not necessarily harsh. It means to admonish, to straightly charge you, to not pacify this and not play around with it, to be firm and to say, you know what, this is real. You've got to deal with this. You know, I've said many years ago that if I was ever facing a life-threatening sickness or disease, I don't want a doctor to come out of the room and look at me and kind of just tiptoe around it and pacify it and make it sound like, you know, well, I want you to just look me in the eye and tell me what it is. So only then can I respond to it, right? And that's the way I believe that the Word of God should be handled. That's where the, the rebuke can come in. And then to exhort, which means to call near, to invite, and, or to invoke, to hopefully cause you to respond. The Amplified Bible translates that particular passage of Scripture this way. Correct those who err in doctrine or behavior. Warn those who sin. And exhort and encourage those who are growing towards spiritual maturity with inexhaustible patience and faithful teaching. So let me say this about preaching and teaching today to which I do and I believe in. I believe it should have an edge. I really do. You know what? I wouldn't want to go to a church where their preaching and teaching didn't have an edge. I would want it to be something that pierces. It's not always gentle. Well, I'm going to preach it. I told y'all several weeks, let me go ahead and do it. I'm going to preach it whether y'all respond or not. If y'all choose to leave, you know what? I'm going to finish my sermon. It may be one person in here, Sister Sherry. She got no choice. She got to stay. We got to stay. But listen, I, I, I believe preaching should have an edge. I do. And I want to say this real quickly. Preaching is not always gentle. It's not always inclusive. And it can create division. Because the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. But a preacher must be trained and sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. Because, listen, if I reprove and rebuke without exhorting, then I will drive you away. If I invite and exhort without reproof or rebuke, I will arrest no one in spirit. You will not be led to repent, and you will not be moved with conviction. So it takes a fine and a careful balance. My greatest desire as a pastor is to be faithful to God and to His call upon my life. My greatest desire is to love both the Word of God and the people of God. Right? And I understand that if I mishandle the Word of God and misapply it, though my motive may be pure, I can hurt and harm you without helping and healing you. And so it takes a unique and delicate balance of skill to be able to rightly divide the Word of God, to rightly exercise the sword of the Spirit. And so Paul gives a warning to Timothy, and note this in the third verse. He says, a time will come. He didn't say might come. He didn't say it's possible. Paul warned of a time that will come that he said when people would not endure sound doctrine. Let me tell you exactly where we are in these United States of America in the Western, the Western church Christendom, they call it. In the church in America today, as a whole, 
as a collective whole. If you take all denominations, Protestant denominations, and put us together all the way spanning the, the many, many uh, types of denominations, as a whole, I would be able to step back and say that we're not enduring sound doctrine. That's my personal opinion. The Amplified Bible says they will not tolerate sound doctrine and accurate instruction that challenges them with the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. In our culture today, there are churches and men and women that are worshiping under the banner of Christ that will not tolerate the truth of Scripture that reproves unholy and unrighteous living. They will not tolerate the truth of Scripture about the sanctity of human life. Let me go a little bit farther. That there are those that are worshiping with crosses around their necks and with banners outside and with signs flashing and billboards that will not tolerate the truth of Scripture that openly addresses homosexuality or adultery or fornication as sin. Right? Let's go a little bit farther. That will also not tolerate the Scripture that teaches a distinction in the sexes. I'm just being real cultural in here today. Let me just go ahead and go out there today. There is a distinction. If by looking in the mirror, you've not been convinced that there is a distinction in the sexes, let me help you here today. God said this, the head of of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. It's pretty simple. Right there, you can dialogue it all you want to. But yes, I'm going to tell you this, I'm a sexist. Yes, I'm a sexist today. For I believe that God put it in my heart as a husband to love my wife and to love her and to show her the love of Christ and to consider that he that founded a wife has found a good thing and I obtained favor of God. And I'm to love and lead her and protect her. And however you work out the working situation in your home, that's between the spouses. But there's a distinction in the roles that we play as husbands and wives and as fathers and mothers. And it's a careful unity and balance of recognizing the defined roles in the Word of God. And if that calls me and that proves that that's what's going to brand me a sexist, then I'm sorry, I will accept that I'm a sexist today. That's according to that particular cultural stand. So here's where we're at today. Men and women want us to, uh, to teach them, but don't teach us about righteousness, faith, and true love. You say, well, Pastor, I hear a lot about, well, we, we, we love and love and all this love. And we've got this almost like hippie love of the 60s that has just jumped forward into the church today. Let me tell you what lo- true love is. Here's what, go to first, you don't turn there, read it on your own time later. But 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the agape chapter in the King James. Here's what the, lo- here's what the true love of God in your heart will not do. It says, it will not rejoice in iniquity. I will celebrate you. I will celebrate you as an individual. I can weep with you, and I can pray with you, and I can laugh, and I can rejoice. But I will not get down in the pig pen with you and celebrate the sin that's in your life. I will not. I will celebrate that there was a cross, there was a Savior, blood was shed, the power of His grace is sufficient, and He's come to deliver you from that sin. So true love does not celebrate iniquity. The Bible says plainly, true love rejoices in the truth it rejoices in the truth in our culture today within the context of the church we have folks that want to be taught about the truth they want to be taught about God but they don't want to be taught to the degree that they are to conform their life to his will we want to conform God to our expectations people will have listen to this I wrote it this way he said they, they simply say 
Don't teach me about the true nature of God, especially his judgment and his wrath. Don't tell me about hell. Only tell me about heaven. Paul said, I didn't write this. Paul did. Look what he said. He said, people will have itching ears. Have you ever had a, just an itch in your ear? And you just can't get that thing scratched. And you just, and you just uh, oh my gosh. And, and I have a little bit of dry skin in my ears. And I have to put a little bit of medication. I know I drive Sister Sherry. She probably, there's probably times that she's just wanted to just scream because I'm just, I'm just agitating and aggravated and everything. Paul said that will happen in the church. Have that, and, and people, listen, people want something tickled or scratched. They desire something pleasant to their ears. Paul said they desire something that appeases them in their lust. And so what are they going to do? They're gonna, they want to be taught, but they don't want to be taught by somebody that's going to teach them the truth. So they're going to get people, and they're going to put them in ecclesiastical clothing, and they're going to put a sign uh, you know, on their office, and they're going to call them pastor or teacher. And, and in doing so, they want them to teach them things uh, that, that, that appease them. And so they have selective hearing, if you will. And so they will, Paul said this, they will heap to themselves teachers. And when I wrote this, I wrote it this way. Men and women that are deceived, confused, and willing to pacify and facilitate ungodliness and unholiness, willing to bless unholy and unholy unlawful unions will here's what they they were they are willing to refute the truth of scripture while they preserve and promote doctrinal error and heresy paul said people will turn away from the truth they will turn away from the truth and they will turn to fables they will quickly leave churches that hold to a standard of truth let me go there with that they will leave churches that hold to a standard of truth and an emphasis on holy and righteous living and an exaltation of Jesus and his lordship. And they will turn to churches where the preacher is non-divisive, inclusive, not angry and mean-spirited. Where he or she doesn't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but rather the fairy tales, fables, allegories, parables, and metaphors. People want to hear and they want to know. They just simply only want to hear what they want to hear. And they only want to know God through their predetermined mindset of his character and his person. Are y'all with me so far? Now, I'm not finished yet. I'm, I'm taking you on a journey. Now, Paul continued his instruction to Timothy. Look at this. So what did he tell Timothy? He said, Timothy, you got to watch. Now, if you look that word up in the original language, it means you got to be sober, calm, and collected in spirit. Not in a frantic or a frenzy, but faithful and steady. That means that if we are instant in season, out of season, the doctrine's not going to change. There can be mass pandemonium in the world and all kinds of crazy things that are happening. But you know what we're going to be? We're going to be solid and steady. Message is not going to change. Let me tell you, the message is not because the truth of Scripture, and I've said it before, the Word of God is eternal. And it will endure all of the onslaughts of man's attempt to silence it. Many times when you look at the historical record of where a culture uh, tried to silence the Word of God, let me tell you, many times those cultures have now passed into uh, history and the Word of God has prevailed. And let me tell you, that will be the same in our culture. I can't always tell you there will be a people called America, but I can tell you one thing, the Word of God is not going to change whether or not there is a people called America. Let me go a little bit farther. Paul said we're to be watched and that your response is not going to change the true doctrine. Here's the way I believe it. If I don't preach the truth of God, he will raise up somebody else that will. 
If I don't assume my responsibility to stand before you and not always pacify you and tickle you in your itching ears so that you can be conformed to the world rather than transformed by the power of the Word of God, God can mute me and silence me and He can put me on a shelf and I can be an antiquated uh, you know, object of past and days gone by. And in doing so, God will raise up somebody else that He'll put a fiery word in their spirit that'll hold forth the truth of the Word of God. That's what I believe in my life. And I want to challenge you today. Listen, Paul told Timothy, we've got to endure afflictions, even as pastors. That means that we can undergo hardships. There will be ridicule and persecution. There will be. Not maybe, not possibly. And if you, as an individual, choose to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Persecution is beginning to mount. You're seeing it in little pockets right here in our culture today. And I'm not trying to, be, again, in a frantic response to it. I'm trying in a solid, steady way, trying to tell you, get your head up. Come on, somebody. Be prepared. Get out of that glass bubble that you've been living in and recognize uh, that things are happening and they've already happened around you. And God's calling you to be the salt and the light, called you to be an anointed uh, person of God, holding forth the truth of the Word of God. Philippians 2 says, in the midst of... Philippians 2 says, we hold the Word of God in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. And we hold what? The truth of the Word of God. And so Paul said that we have to be prepared for people to walk away and to turn away. Paul said, you know what, Pastor Brown, through Timothy, you've got to do the work of an evangelist. What does that mean? An evangelist is one that brings the good news. Thus, the gospel is what? It's good news. Teaching the truth of Scripture is good news. Walking in the light as Jesus is in the light, that's good news. It's good news when God tells me that I can come out from among them and be ye separate and live a holy and righteous life. It's good news when I tell you Titus 3 said this right here, that teaching us the grace of God has appeared to all mankind, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's good news. It doesn't mean that I have to live in a monastery somewhere. It doesn't mean that I have to leave and, and move away out into the woods somewhere and live in a cave. It means right in the midst where there's ungodliness all around me, I can be salt and light and I can make a difference in the world that I live in. I can have the fragrance of Christ upon me every day and so can you. I can have an anointing upon my life, and so can you. I can shine the light into the darkness, and the darkness will in no wise, if we were to turn out all the, dark, the, the light in this building, and we were to block off every entrance until it was totally black in here, just one little candlestick, the Bible says that the darkness cannot put it out. And so the Word of God will not be silenced. But let me tell you about where our present position and condition in our culture is going. Let me tell you, where it's going is not where it's going to end. Because we see, or excuse me, let me say that. The, the end, where we're at right now, is not the end. There is a, there, I believe, in my heart of hearts, there is a demonic conspiracy. You say, oh my gosh, Pastor Brown's been watching certain videos. No, no. A demonic conspiracy to so alter the church to two generations from now. We would not only have modified the gospel, we will have replaced the gospel. See, it's not being replaced right now, Gail, but it's being modified. 
But the end result is that the modification will lead one day to an entire replacement of what you and I hold to be the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example to show you what I mean as a conspiracy or a satanic scheme. I've noticed in the Word of God that there's a pattern, and if you'll look at it, I'll show it to you today. I want you to see this with me. Are y'all out there in radio land today? Pastor Brown, is this, this is good news. Yes, it is good news. This is the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that can penetrate into the darkness. The true light of the gospel and the power of the Word of God. Let me give you an example of this. In the days of ancient Israel, and I'm going to show you a passage in a moment, but I'm going to take you through a little historical narrative for a moment. If you were to study the Old Covenant in the days of ancient Israel, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, the things that happened to Israel were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of this world have come. Romans 15 and 4 says these things were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. So we look back through the lens of the Old Testament and we see picture images of sometimes what might come to pass during our time frame. And at the height of apostasy, when was the, we're not at the height of the potential apostasy that could take place in our country and in the church as of yet. The height of apostasy for Israel during their thousands of years, whether 2,000 years or 1,500 years, however long it was, when they had kings ruling on the throne of Israel was during that of Ahab and Jezebel. That was at the height because Ahab and Jezebel had uh, a, a, a purposed intention of not only uh, modifying worship, but of replacing worship. Out with Yahweh God, the historic God of ancient Israel, in with Baal worship. So if you read that, and, and, and Jezebel was the driving force behind it. She would have been brought up. Her father was the king slash priest of a city called Sidon in northern, what we would call Lebanon today, or northern Israel, north of Israel. And so, and, and she, was, so she was raised as a priestess in Baal worship or Ashtoreth worship. And she was almost successful if it had not been for the prophet Elijah. But even the prophet Elijah felt her intimidation. A prophet that was bold and strong got one message from the queen, and he ran out of fear for his own life, sat down under a juniper tree, and wished to die. Altars for Baal had been built. A grove had been erected. Pastor, what's a grove? It's a stand of trees that are shaped like a male penis to invoke celestial attractions and sensuality to Baal and Ashtoreth. Jezebel had cut off every prophet of God that she could get her hands on, she killed him, cut him off from the land of the living. Somebody hid a hundred prophets in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And even Elijah, Elijah didn't even know about some of that. And Elijah said, I'm the only one left. Now, he wasn't the only one left. God had preserved a remnant of believers. But if it wasn't for that fateful showdown on Mount Carmel, the true worship of Yahweh might have been lost to antiquity. But here's the question I have. How did or how was Jezebel so successful? Listen to this very carefully. If you do so, if you don't catch this, you're going to miss this. This might be the culmination of my series of messages about the validity and the sanctity of Scripture. Because a progressive decline had begun to take place several years earlier. Because it didn't happen overnight. There wasn't an out with the old and in with the new overnight. There was a modification of the old systematically that allowed for a moment when they could flush out the old and bring in the new. Ahab was the seventh king in the divided kingdom of Israel. And he began his reign in 870 B.C. 
But it, there were events that had taken place in the 920s, so somewhere in there, that were set in motion for the that set in motion for that great apostasy 50 years later. Let me take you through history for just a moment. Are y'all with me out there? Right now, listen. I, I can't apologize for this. This is the truth of the Word of God. And I say, well, I don't, Pastor. You're talking about history, things like that. I'm talking about biblical history that's been captured by a, by a prophetic pen that you and I are to look at it so that we can see it, so we can be aware. And we won't be caught off guard about the changes that are happening around us. And I know there are churches that don't get into this type of preaching. And I know there are pastors and teachers that think that my style of preaching and teaching and the doctrine that I choose is antiquated. You know why that, you know why that is? I'll just tell you. It's not because they're being contemporary. It's because they're being deceived. I'll just go out there. It's because they're being deceived because they're modifying the truth of the gospel to make it more convenient for the people. And I've noticed in the Word of God, I see no place for the modification of the Word of God. It's not that the gospel's going to be modified for me. I'm going to have to modify my life to fit God's expectation for my life. And so in this passage of Scripture here, let me tell you when it that was. Solomon, everybody's familiar with Solomon, correct? Solomon was the wisest of kings. He had a supernatural wisdom that God gave him. He was the son of David. He was the third in the lineage of kings. The kingdom was united. It was expanded. God had blessed Solomon. But towards the end of his life, the Bible plainly tells us in the biblical narrative that he was led into idolatry. Solomon made a tragic mistake and he married 699 wives too many. That meant there were 700. And so he married 699 too many. And many of them came from pagan backgrounds. And so Solomon, in order to appease his wife or wives began to erect temples to their, idol, their, their idols in Israel. Now, he didn't change necessarily his worship, but he facilitated the other worship. And so when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam has become, has become the king. And there was a potential for something possibly good to Rehoboam. But the people wanted to be relaxed a little bit from the taxation that Solomon had put upon them. So they gained a leader by the name of Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam, the Bible says plainly, was a mighty man of valor. And God had even prophetically spoken into his life that he potentially might even gain the kingdom one day. And God had even promised to bless his life if he would walk faithfully before him. So he led the coalition to go to Rehoboam and said, we want to follow you, but you got to draw back on the taxation. It's so hard. And so Rehoboam said, give me three days to think about it. And so Rehoboam first talked to all of what we would call the greatest generation. He talked to the older folk. And he said, well, tell me what you think. And the older folk said, listen, he said, if you'll show kindness to this people, he said, this people will follow you anywhere. And so he said, well, I don't know if I really feel that. So then he called his millennial buddies. I'm going to just step out there. So he called, the Bible says, those that he was raised up amongst. His peers. And what did they say? He said, you tell them this. You tell them you thought Solomon's hand was strong. He said, our little finger will be stronger than all of Solomon's hand. And so he chose to follow. And he told them what his contemporaries told him on that third day. And when they did, the kingdom fragmented. And ten nations followed Jeroboam. And two, the southern kingdom, with the temple, stayed with Rehoboam. And in the temple was the worship of Yahweh. 
So Jeroboam found himself in a plight. Let's go there to close the message. Y'all with me out there in Radio Land? Man, I feel Jesus. I don't know if you'll get this on TBN or God TV, but you're getting it right here at First Assembly of God. Let's go there. Let's go real quickly to a passage in 2 Kings chapter number 12. And let's look at this for just a moment in closing. Are y'all with me? There's an expected end. Stay with me in this. I, I believe God has put this on my heart to share with you as a fellowship and to hopefully uh, create a mindset in us. As Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, you've got to be aware of these things. You've got to be sober to these things. So in 2 Kings, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter number 12, 1 Kings chapter number 12, I apologize. We'll pick up this story in the 26th verse. And here's what Jeroboam said. Now remember, Jeroboam is now the, in essence, the coronated king of the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes of Israel, small landmass. The two southern tribes, Judah and uh, Benjamin, have remained with Rehoboam, and that's where Jerusalem is. And so Jeroboam is thinking about his kingdom and how he can maintain the control of his, uh, of his kingdom. And here's what he said. He said, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Because if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto the Lord. Even unto Rehoboam, unto, of their Lord, not the Lord Jehovah, but unto their Lord, Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and they will go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So look what he did. So in essence, what he said, he said, I've got to, keep, I've got to do something to keep them. What he's saying, if they make their annual pilgrimages down to Jerusalem, something's going to confront them and something's going to convict them. What is it? He said, in the, and this is, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, in the temple at Jerusalem would be a priesthood of the sons of Aaron that had an anointing upon their life. And the sons of Aaron would be those that were set apart by God, consecrated by God, and empowered by God to preach the truth of the Word of God. They were to help the people offer sacrifice. They were to look in the brazen laver. They were to go into the holy place, and they were to eat the shoe bread, and they were to have their souls illuminated by the light of the candlestick, and they were to fill the holy place with the fragrance of, uh, of incense. And they were to come out of the holy place with a word in their heart and teach the people. And Jeroboam knew that if the people went on a regular basis to the house of God, that he would eventually lose control of his kingdom because the people would repent, because the truth would convict them, and they would repent before God. And so Jeroboam knew, though, that he couldn't replace the worship of Yahweh, but if he modified it. If he modified it, know what he did. Look what he did real quickly. Jeroboam made two calves of gold. And you said, Pastor Brown, well, that's a replacement. No, it's not. If you will look deeply into this passage of Scripture, that calf of gold, look what he said. He said, there's two calves of gold, and here's what he said. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. For behold your gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He quoted the exact words of Aaron. The day that Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of commandments and the people wanted a God and they wanted somebody to speak to them, Moses uh, was gone away and so they, they conspired against Aaron and Aaron put their gold in a fire and out came a golden calf. Anybody remember that? And, 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 and the Bible says that he said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, is thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt? And Aaron wasn't going to replace 
the worship of Yahweh. He was going to use the golden calf in the worship of Yahweh because Aaron said, we'll have a, pre, a feast to Jehovah. So Jeroboam reached back into antiquity and he caught a moment of idolatry and apostasy and he brought it forth in his generation and he erected it where? Notice this real quickly, two strategic places. One, the Dan, the northernmost part of the nation. And the next was what? Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. And so what he said was, and then look what he did. Read it on down further. The sake of time, I won't go into it or I won't read it, but he said this real quickly. He took the lowest of the people. You didn't have to be of Aaron's lineage. What does that mean? It means you didn't have to have an anointing on your life. You didn't have to have a consecrated fragrance of God upon your life set apart by God. If you wanted to be the preacher, you were the preacher. If you brought a big enough offering that you could offer the offering, then you could be the pastor or the teacher. And he set the lowest of the people and he made them priests. And what he did was he modified true worship in his generation. And you say, Pastor Brown, what's the resounding word that you feel in your spirit? I'm telling you what's going on right in front of our eyes is the modification of the true gospel. It's not the replacement. It's not that, listen, that people are being forbidden from going to churches. They're being encouraged to go to churches. Y'all didn't didn't respond. They're not being forbidden. They're being encouraged. Because they're going to go into many churches and they're going to sit on padded pews and they're going to have sometimes even fantastic worship. But then a man or a woman's going to stand behind a pulpit without any fragrance of the anointing of God upon their life. Without any conviction, without any true ordination and any conviction of the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to teach fables and fairy tales and they're going to show you movies and they're going to pass out popcorn and they're going to do all these things uh, all the while while the truth of the Word of God is being slightly modified and slightly altered. The, The satanic attempt of the enemy of our day is not to replace the true gospel. That's for later. But to modify it to the degree that it loses its edge. And that's what I want to tell you today, as I began to think about that today, that the enemy, the adversary, in his scheme, the enemy's way and means was to keep the people away from a man of God who was anointed of the Holy Spirit, who would do what? Listen to what Paul told Timothy, who would preach the word in season and out of season. Whether it's convenient or not, whether it's culturally acceptable or not, but that has a conviction that's born upon the revelation of the true Word of God, that's what the enemy does not want the people to hear. The enemy will create. The enemy's not going to keep people from church. He's going to funnel them into another structure where they're going to sit and they're going to hear and they're going to respond and they're going to go through all this motion and all the while the Word of God is being muted little by little Little by little, and we hear truth, and we reject it, and we turn to fables. Aaron, join me on the platform today. My friends, that's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth of the error of our generation. Let me listen to this in closing. This degeneration of biblical truth intently and progressively led to 58 years later, there was a near extinction of anointed prophets and the true worship of God in the northern kingdom was almost lost because of a progressive decline, keeping people from hearing the truth of the word of God. I don't know about you, that moves me. It does. I don't believe church is always about feel good, pacification, 
I believe that the truth of the Word of God pierces our soul, causes us to examine ourselves, not causes us to be arrogant or judgmental, but causes us to say, God, work in my heart, but also to help me help somebody and point them to true repentance and find a place of connection. Many of the true priests and prophets migrated to the southern kingdom. Here's my conviction. Paul told Timothy, does this make sense to y'all now? Paul told Timothy, Timothy, from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures. They're able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I charge thee, Timothy, by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, by a soon and sudden appearing when he will judge the quick and the dead, that you do what? That you preach the word. That you preach the word how and when? In season and out of season. When it's convenient, you preach it, and when it's inconvenient. When it's culturally acceptable, you preach it. And when it's culturally unacceptable, you preach it. When you preach it and everybody receives it, and you preach it when everybody rejects it. Because... The exhortation to us as men of God is to preach the Word of God. Let me tell you today, church family, I'm telling you, I'm grieved. I grieve in my spirit. I grieve in my spirit because people, there are many that worship, that worship in churches uh, blindly, and they they would hear a sermon like mine that I just preached in your ears today, and they would call me homophobic. They would call me mean-spirited. They would call me divisive. They would call me a religious right-winger. They would call me a religious heretic. They would say uh, I, I'm ignorant because I'm, I'm not accommodating and I'm not inclusive. And all these things, that's the, bl- that's the label that would be given to a message just like what you heard right here in this room today. But that's why you got to know what you believe. And you got to encourage people. I don't believe all is lost. I don't believe all is lost in any capacity. But I'm telling you, if many times people uh, that are pastoring even other churches, and I'm not trying to put us up on a pedestal, and I'm not trying to say we're right and everybody's wrong. I'm not trying to say that. But I am trying to say this. I have a strong enough conviction by the Word of God to be able to say the gospel that we preach here at First Assembly is not a modified gospel. I have a strong enough conviction in my spirit today to tell you that we're not going to alter the gospel for you or for CNN or for the next president or for the next Congress. We're going to preach the truth of the Word of God. And we're going to expect us to respond to it. You know what we've got to do, church family? We've got to pray for churches and our church as well. I'm telling you, there are some churches that, that, that today, man, they could have revival. Right in the if their preacher got up off of his little stool that he was sitting on and the coffee that he was drinking, his latte that he was drinking while he's preaching, and if he got up and said, The Spirit of God fell on my heart when I worshiped last night, and I got a word, and it didn't come from headquarters, and it didn't come from our center church and our other pastor that mailed it in. I didn't get it in the mail, and I didn't get it in email. I got it in email because I laid myself before God, and God put a word in my heart. I'm telling you, a revival would reverberate throughout those churches. And I want to say this to you today. You don't know how privileged that you are in the eyes of God to be able to come to a fellowship every day, every week, and have men of God and women of God hold before you the truth of the Word of God and speak it to you uncompromising and with clear conviction and say, we're not going to whitewash it for anybody. It is the Word of God. 
It's the only thing that will produce lasting change in your life. Did you know one day Jesus said this? As I close completely and entirely. Jesus said this to his disciples. It was a hard saying. It was really hard. Matter of fact, it offended the Pharisees and scribes bad. Because he said, your fathers had manna in the wilderness. And they ate it and are dead. But if you'll eat my body and drink my blood, you'll live forever. Man, they couldn't understand that. That freaked them out. And they turned and many of them walked away. And you know what Jesus did? He looked at those 12. He said, does this offend you? Does this offend you? And if their response had been, yeah, Lord, he would have said, are you two going to go away? And he actually did a few verses later. He said, will you too go away? And Peter said, Lord, you're the only one that have the words of life. We're staying with you. You know what? I want to be numbered with a group of people that say, God, I'm going to stay with the truth of Scripture. I'm not telling you we're not going to have life groups at times where it's built around fellowship. And you're going to jump on motorcycles and drive. Those are great things. Or you're going to go climb mountains together. Those are great things. But for this first segment right here, in this winter months, we thought what a powerful time to have you go through a study that would show you about the divine origin of Scripture. And to get you rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Studying the Word together. Building your fellowship with each other based upon a common conviction of the Word of God. I believe it will produce a fruit in you that will produce a change in you that will cause you to be like Timothy. What does that mean? Right there. Sober. Get your eyes open. Don't be led into the, to the deceitfulness of the generation which we live in. Because I started in that 13th verse and I almost omitted it in my closing words. He said, evil men and seducers shall do what? Wax, King James English, grow worse and worse. Doing what? Deceiving and being deceived. But you got to know what you believe. And you got to be assured of these things. No modification of the gospel. We want to propagate the pure gospel. That's the gospel that will change lives. Would you all stand up with me today? We'll close in prayer. Let me remind you before I close in prayer. It's a special service tonight. Prayer. Excuse me. Praise. Prayer. Praying for one another. And communion. You don't want to miss that. Put that away. Don't forget it. It's at 5 o'clock. I want to encourage you, if at all possible, to come out and be a part of it. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. I know I preached a little bit longer today. And you know what? I do not apologize for it today. Surely you could give me 45 minutes of your time to preach the truth of the Word of God. Surely that's more important than an NFL ball game or slipping out to lunch. Surely this little segment of your life, surely you put greater value on this time where an anointed man or woman of God preaches to you the truth of the Word of God more than those things that appeal to your flesh. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. I'm going to give a twofold invitation. The first invitation is this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and personal Savior, as your Lord and personal Savior, if you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, the Word of God says if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the, the quick 
uh, just picture image of the gospel right there. Believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and you'll be saved. Is there anybody under the sound of my voice today that says, Pastor Brown, would you pray with me right where I'm at? Because I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. If that's you, slip your hand up today. I'll pray with you. I'm looking across the congregation. No one's looking around. It's just me.